0: Well, we're in the second week of our series on worship. And last week, Keith introduced the series, reminding us that in our title, it's all about you. The you is capitalized. And that reminds us that our worship is all about God. It's to be God-centered. Uh, and before we continue, I want to thank Anna Smith for our artwork. I have appreciated the young people using their gifts in this way. Uh, it's a blessing to me. I hope it is to you. So she's provided the artwork out of the gifts that God's given her. Now, from, also from Keith's message, he gave us a working definition of worship. And from this definition, we're reminded of a number of things. First of all, worship springs from an encounter with God. And it's a God who reveals himself to us. We wouldn't know God unless he first revealed himself to us. Our God is unique among the gods of the world's religions. Keith also talked about this last week, that the God is transcendent. He is outside of space and time, yet he has condescended to act on behalf of his people, to act within our world, so much so that his own son, Jesus Christ, who's God himself, entered our world in human flesh. That's not a God that the other gods are like. He is unique. And then when we encounter this God, we can't help but respond. And we respond with all of our being, with our hearts, with our emotions, our minds, our thinking, and our wills. And then thirdly, we can use a variety of inward and and outward expressions to respond to this God. But each one of these expressions needs to be spirit-empowered, And it needs to be God-honoring. Now, next week, Keith's going to show us that Scripture informs all of our worship in these varied expressions. But this morning, we want to take up the topic of praise. And we want to see how praise can lead to worship. We'll use two psalms that Jim has read this morning, Psalm 117 and a portion of Psalm 34. And these psalms will give us a pattern, a pattern that teaches us how we proclaim God's greatness. But first we have to ask the question, aren't praise and worship the same thing? That's a question I had to ask myself this week, because I think sometimes we we look at them as synonymous, We've just sung worship songs, or praise choruses, which one? Those songs talk about God, they express who he is, they express what he's done. Haven't we just worshipped? Well, maybe, but then again, maybe not. I want us to use, I wanted to settle on some bite-sized definitions for praise and worship that I think will help us discern the difference between the two. And I've used, uh, I had a really good article on gotquestions.org. If you've never used that website before, jot it down, gotquestions.org. It has over 600,000 questions that people have asked about the Bible, about Christianity, about our faith, and they're excellent biblical compact answers to those questions. So that's an extra that didn't cost you anything this morning and I receive no payment from got questions praise a joyful recounting of all that God is and all he's done now with this definition of praise praise can be horizontal we can praise a graduate for their academic accomplishments we can heap praises upon our children when they respond in joyful obedience to our request. But praise is also vertical, where we heap blessings on our God. Worship is something very different. Worship is something deeper. It's something more meaningful. Have you ever gone to weddings and funerals, uh, graduations, other types of events, birthday parties, that you get the invitation in the mail, and, and sometimes you receive that invitation with joy. The individual is close to you, the person who's graduated, or you, you want to go to that memorial service so you can express how that person impacted your life and is now passed on to their life with Christ. And you enter into that event with all of the joy. You look forward to it expectantly. But then there are other times when you get the invitation. You go, oh, I guess we should go. Now, don't you judge me. You think the same thing. I know it. You see, you may be close, a little bit close to that person. Or you're close to somebody connected to that person. Just enough so that you should go. But really, inside, you don't want to. Now, you show up, you give your gift, you give your card, but you're sitting in the pews going, I could be mowing the lawn right now. Ah, man, it's really nice. I hope we get out early enough for a nice dinner. But then when you confront that person, you put on the smiles, and you you give them their accolades and their praise, and you walk away, and they think that you've fully entered into the occasion. But you know that your mind really hasn't been there. That's the difference that can happen between praise and worship. Praise can be the second where I can mouth praise. I can go through the, the, the uh, motions of praise. But when my heart's not in it, when God is not my object, it's just not worship. It's just not. Worship is something much more. In the Old and New Testament, the words for worship both have their root in the idea of bowing down. or or falling down. Psalms 95 and verse 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Now, kneeling and bowing for the Hebrews and for the the first century church, that was kind of a normal part of life. You bowed down to idols, you bowed down to emperors, but we're Americans, we don't bow down to anybody. This is a completely un-American concept. And so it's hard for us. To think about worship as humbling ourselves, as bowing down before the majesty of who God is. Worship, then, is the art of losing self in the adoration of another. You see the difference between that and praise? And as such, God is the only true object of worship. Now, I want to be clear. What What I don't mean by this definition is that we we ex- worship is this ecstatic experience where we kind of lose our mind and our will into an emotional buzz. That, that, that's not what I'm talking about. This is the art of setting myself, my priorities, my wants and needs aside. And as the things of the world grow strangely dim, it's in the light of his glory and grace. All I see is our Lord and Savior. I'm focused completely on his worth. That's when it becomes worship. The idea is captured in Psalm 29 and verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And when we do that. Praise becomes a means of worship. Now, in the Psalms, we find patterns of praise that teach us how to worship, that inform our worship. And while these Psalms were written almost three millennia ago by by Jewish males, written in the form of Jewish poetry in a different geography, in a different culture, in a different time, in those respects, they are distant from who we are. But yet at the same time, they are God-inspired Scripture inspired by him and preserved by him for our use, to instruct us. Now, I want to say something about patterns in Scripture. We're going to learn from patterns, but patterns can also be a stumbling block. In Matthew, Jesus taught us how to pray when he spoke the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, we can use that prayer, we can pray that prayer verbatim, and it can be a legitimate prayer. But it can also just be us reciting words. If we're just reciting words for the pattern, then it's an illegitimate prayer. Praise can be the same way. We can use these psalms, we can recite these psalms, we can speak these psalms, and it can be true praise that leads to worship. Or if we just recite the words, they're really nothing, and they don't honor and glorify our God. In the Psalms, we find two distinct patterns of praise. And these patterns can be used personally, individually. They can use, be used corporately as a body. They can be used in private. And they can be used in public. The first of the Psalms of praise could be called descriptive. And this is where the worshiper proclaims who God is. We're going to use Psalm 117 to understand this. Now in these psalms, these descriptive psalms of praise, the common Hebrew verb that we see throughout them is the verb halal, which means praise. And it's typically connected with Yahweh, the Lord. So we get praise the Lord. And it's where we get our word Hallelujah. Try that again. Hallelujah. Turn it into worship. Hallelujah. Amen. I heard, some, I heard some emotion there. That's okay. I'm not much better in public. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for who you are. I've chosen this psalm because it gives us a very compact example of descriptive praise. And it reminds us that our praise does not need to be verbose. We can praise God in the the brief moments of our day as they flip by. We can also praise God in extended periods where we are alone together with him. And we can praise him for hours. Charles Spurgeon called this psalm the shortest chapter in the scriptures, which it is, only two verses. And also the central portion of the whole Bible because of the message that it teaches. And in declaring who God is, There are several elements that are common to these descriptive psalms. The first one we see in verse 1, and that's a call to praise. In a descriptive psalm, it starts with a call to praise. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Praise is an act of the will. The psalmist is calling himself and all peoples to willfully engage in the praise of the Lord. And it acknowledges that our praise doesn't come naturally as sinful human beings. Notice also the God-focused language of these psalms. Here are some other calls to worship from the psalms. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God and King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. See, these calls to worship, they're like spiritual jumper cables. And we all need a jump start every once in a while. The psalmist comes and he knows that it's right for him to praise the Lord. He knows that when he enters in to seeing who God is, that he that will result in praise and worship. But he's got to get himself going. And he's got to call himself in a very excited way. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, all creation. Back in Psalm 17, the writer here calls all redeemed people of all nations, of all creeds, of all languages to praise the Lord because it's only the redeemed that can truly praise him. So that's the call to praise. Then in the middle part of the psalm, the first part of verse 2, we have the cause for praise. There's the call to praise and then the cause for praise. And this is where God has revealed his character to the psalmist. He says, For great is his steadfast love towards us, And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. See, God had promised that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that promise was ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Who upon his death, his burial, and his resurrection for all the sins of his people. When he rose again, he made the gospel available, salvation available to all peoples. Not just the Jews. And Paul will quote this psalm later in Romans chapter 15 and verse 11 to prove the same thing, that the gospel is for the Jews as well as the Gentiles. And and the psalmist praises God because he's revealed that he's a God of love and he's a God of faithfulness because he's carried out that promise. After the cause for praise, then typically there's a conclusion And this is often a renewed call to praise. Praise the Lord, the psalmist says. And I think it's in the conclusion that we can grasp the idea that this praise has turned to worship. Because the psalmist just doesn't state the facts and leave them there. In stating what has happened, in entering into who God is, in experiencing this God who's revealed himself... The only response to this God is more praise. And so often these these psalms are followed up with an additional call to praise. Praise the Lord for who he is. Our praise sometimes starts with praise. But maybe it doesn't start with worship. Maybe the praise is what's needed to bring us to worship. I have a few personal illustrations in this sermon. And I have to tell you up front, this does not mean that I have it all together. You only follow me as I follow Christ. But my personal illustrations are the only personal ones I have. I don't have yours, so I have to use mine. There was a time in our family's life when we were experiencing something very difficult. And I can remember coming down to my office, I have a home office, trying to work. Nothing happened. Everything was black. I couldn't think. I couldn't process. I didn't know where God is. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know what to do next. There was just nothing. And I don't know why it came to me, but this little chorus came to my mind. And as an act of the will, I started to sing this little chorus. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. And it wasn't worship, and I couldn't find God. But over and over again, I sung that chorus. And somewhere, somehow, it turned to worship when God broke through. And I knew it did when the tears started to roll. And I was in the presence of the the king of heaven. And I could rejoice that he was the king. And that he had it all figured out. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. In your bulletins, I've noted some other descriptive psalms that you can turn to. And I would encourage you to spend some time in the psalms. And learn from the church's songbook. How we should worship him. Well, the second pattern of praise in the Psalms is what we might call declarative praise. And this is where the worshiper proclaims what God has done, God has acted. And these are Psalms of thanksgiving. A common verb in these Psalms is yada, which means to thank. Or to confess. It's a bit deeper than our word thank you. As I was studying this for the first time, I I realized that Hebrew doesn't really have language for thank you the way we use thank you. It's much deeper and it always involves this idea of confession. And the Hebrew word for, for, for thanks expresses acknowledgement. It's like when I confess my sin before the Lord, I have to acknowledge my sin before him. That's confession. And Hebrew thanks is similar. Thanksgiving in the Bible is a confession of what God has done. And the biblical vocabulary of praise is is not just a feeling or attitude of gratitude, although it is that we are we are thankful to god we can express gratitude for him to him but the worshiper in the hebrews doesn't in the psalms doesn't simply say i'm thankful in in saying thanks he's saying i will respond to what god has done for me and there's a difference there Now, there are common patterns in these declarative psalms. In the experience of the psalmist, that word over again, experience. In the experience of the psalmist, the psalmist has experienced God. God has acted. His praise is a direct response to that act. And that praise is always expressed with great joy. Now, the setting for Psalm 34 is in its introduction. It says at the introduction of that psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Everybody understands the setting for the psalm, right? That psalm, right? That's complete. Well, what we need to go is back to 1 Samuel. At 1 Samuel chapter 21, and there was a period in his life before he was king where David was fleeing from King Saul. King Saul had it out for him. King Saul wanted to murder David, and David was fleeing for his life. And he fled down to the city of Gath, to the Philistines. Thought he could hide out there for a little bit. But the problem is the Philistines recognized him, and they recognized this guy as an important man in Israel. And in the back of their minds, we're thinking, he's good for a little bit of bounty. We get a hold of this guy, we send him back to Saul, it could be a little coin in our pocket. And in a split second decision, David launches into this period of lunacy, where he runs around and he scratches at the city gates, and he dribble, drools all over himself, and he just acts the fool. And the king says, oh yeah, I don't have enough lunatics in my own city, you bring me more, get him out of here. And they send him on his way, and David is saved. Now, when you look at that, you might say, well, David is, um, uh, is pretty shrewd. Or, boy, I'm glad that um, there was a stroke of luck that we got out of there. David might have looked at it that way. But no, David Saul was spiritualized, and he wrote this psalm to declare what God had done to save him. And the elements of these psalms are three. The first of all, there's a proclamation. And that's in verses 1 through 3. We see, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Similar to the call to praise in the descriptive. But this is a proclamation, And these proclamations often begin with these I will statements. I will bless. I will thanks. I will give thanks. I will extol. The psalmist again uses an act of the will to choose to thank God for how God has acted. So that's in the proclamation. Proclamation. And then two, there's a report of deliverance. If God has acted in the life of the psalmist, then the psalmist declares, what has God done? And that's in verses four through seven. I sought the Lord. He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Now watch the God-focused language again. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces, they're never ashamed. This poor man cried, the Lord heard him. The Lord saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord protects me. He encamps around those who fear him. He delivers them. God, God, God. There's no mention in here of all at all about how shrewd David was. There's no retelling of of, of how the the spirit just shot this idea into his head, and and so he was able to get out of it. No, David saw this whole experience as God intervened in history to preserve my life. And I'm going to push myself aside. And I'm going to praise his great name for what he's done. These, act, these types of declarations in scripture, sometimes they come after the fact like this. This was after that time when David wrote that. We don't know how far after. Sometimes they're almost immediate. If you go back to Exodus and you see when, when God brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea and saved them from the Egyptians, they immediately launch into songs. And so sometimes these declarative statements of praise are immediate. I have just witnessed God act and I can and because I've encountered him all I can do is praise him. Why is it important? Why is it important to recount the details? Why was it important for David to tell this again? Has God forgotten what he did? Maybe God needs his feathers preened a little bit over this. Well, no, absolutely not. As Keith brought out last week, God doesn't need our praise. He's self-sufficient in and of himself. When we give voice to something, it requires an act of the mind. And the reality of that event settles in for us. When we have to think about what happened, when we have to process how has God acted? What has He done? What would it have meant for me for Him not to have acted? When we process that and give it voice, it deepens our understanding of it, and in turn, we can then properly praise Him for it. Well, number three, then there's a renewed thanksgiving. And that's what happens as David processes this with his mind, as he expresses it with his mouth and on his quill pen. He renews his thanksgiving by saying, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints. For those who fear him lack nothing. The conclusions to these declarative psalms, sometimes there's a renewed call to praise. Sometimes there's a prayer. Sometimes there's instructing others about what God has done. The endings vary, but the theme is the same. I have experienced God. And my only response to him is to worship him. The worshiper cannot encounter the living God without responding. I've given you some additional declarative psalms in your bulletin. Again, I would encourage you, this is the only sermon I've preached in a while that has homework. You really need to go and spend some time drenching yourself in the language of these psalms and considering because the words were written for you as God's people, how has God acted in the same way for me? How has he expressed his character to me in the same way? And then how can I in turn respond and worship him? Well, that leads us to the question, much more practically, how can my praise lead to worship. I'm very proud of myself. I've come up with three Ps. For those of you who are note takers, get three Ps this morning to help us remember. And consider how each one of these requires the mind, requires the will, and requires the emotions. God requires all three engaged for proper praise and worship. Number one is perception. Number one's perception. Are we ever going to see God's character if we're not looking for it? That sounds like a very simple question. Duh. But we go through life very busy. We miss a lot of things in life. Are we missing the character of God as he's revealing it to us? Are we taking the time to look? God has given us the created order. Creation screams the glory of God. Do we take the time to look? The scriptures. I mean, God has written us 66 books and letters. You can't get more direct than that. It's here, black and white. We can read it. We can study it. We can see exactly how God has revealed himself. And then through prayer, through the study of the word, through the fellowship of other Christians as we interact with each other and encourage each other, these are all ways to see who God is. But we need to look. We need to see. And sometimes in the circumstances of life, we can be like David might have been. Slip through that one. Whew, that was a stroke of luck. But do we look at those circumstances and ask ourselves, how has God just acted in my life? An illustration of that. This photograph may be a little hard to see. Photograph is taken from my driveway a few months ago. It shows a truck in the ditch. I got this picture from my wife who texted it to me. And somebody who was under the influence had crossed our driveway, which is to the right, completely crossed the driveway, hit our tree, severed a telephone pole, and ended up in the ditch. Everybody was okay. A few minutes later, Andrew returned from work. He he delivers for Domino's when he's not at school, pulled in the driveway and parked and was fine. But as Robin and I started to process that event, we started to realize Andrew was one to two minutes max from coming home. If he had been in the driveway at that exact time, that truck would have T-boned his driver's side door. Now we could say, that was lucky." But in our conversation, it was this sense of, "How's God just acted?" And we started to process. What did it take for God to delay Andrew just a minute? Was was that extra red light that irritated him? Was that slow driver that he couldn't get around? Did somebody at the pizza shop ask him to do one more thing? What happened? But all we knew is God acted in grace and mercy to delay him one to two minutes. And that gave cause for praise and cause for worship. God does that for us all the time, and we need to be looking out for it. Number two, practice. Practice makes perfect. We are not going to come into this service and praise if we are not practicing praise in our daily life. And our praise will not lead to worship if we're not practiced. Practice becomes more natural and leads to worship. And it sounds simple. But let me ask you this. And I ask myself this too. At family meals, how often does the discussion turn to God's greatness? How often do we express who God, how God has revealed himself to me today? What has he done in my life today? We're all eaters in here. I know everybody's going to run out to lunch afterwards and people are going to get together. We all, we're going to barbecue. We're going to do all kinds of things over food with brothers and sisters in Christ. How often does the conversation turn to the greatness of God? If we can't express the greatness of God, how, who He is, how He's acted in our lives to each other, how do we express that to the world? Who needs to hear it? These are practical questions that we as God people, God's people need to be asking ourselves. God has taught me something about this process. Here's another picture. This is my backyard pond. There's two places in life. Where when I'm there, all is right with the world. One is behind this pulpit. And two is sitting in nature, contemplating. And this is my happy place. And when I put this in a number of years ago, it was a place where I went. Again, I have a home office and I would go out and I would be a little stressed. So I'd go out and sit at the pond and feed the fish and watch the birds and, and, and just try to... My idea of being unstressed was to get away from what was stressing me and turn it off. But something over the years changed and that God started to work. And I started to sit there and I started to notice things. You know, butterflies were created so beautifully. And the intricacy of their wings and their legs, and I started to watch how they went to the different flowers. And I watched how the frogs uh, uh, created their young, and the tadpoles, and all of these things. I watched how the flowers would bloom, and how the bees would come and move the 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 the, the pollen from one to another, so that they would populate. Watch the rabbits come in, and, and and I even have binoculars. I watch the rabbits. I can see them up close and see how they feed and what. All of a sudden, as I started to look at creation in a different way, it's like wow, God. You are an absolutely amazing God. You are so creative. And those sessions by my pond started to turn from getting away from stress to sitting there proclaiming God's greatness as a time of praise, and then it leads to worship. That's just one example of what we can be doing to change how we're thinking, to practice our praise and our worship before him. Thirdly, and I'm not going to go into detail on this one, because Keith's going to be preaching about this in a few weeks, is preparation. We need to be prepared to praise him. We need to be preparing ourselves on how to properly praise him and worship him. I'll give you one practical way you can do that for our corporate worship. That's this thing called Facebook. I have no idea. I don't know anything about it. I'm not on social media. But I know if you go to this strange website called Grace Community Church Facebook, Eric posts there a link at the end of each week that there's a playlist there of the songs that we're going to be singing together here on a Sunday morning. It's a Spotify list. I don't know anything about Spotify either. But apparently when you do all this clicking, you get songs. You can ask him later. <laughs> but they're the songs that we're going to sing. Here's, a, here's a, a, a suggestion for preparation. On Saturday night, if we went to that playlist and, and listened to those songs and heard those words, we could consider... Not how those are generic praise and worship words, but how has God acted? How has he revealed himself in the same way to me? And then I bring that into the corporate worship. So the songs are just not rote words. They're expressions, my own personal expression of who God is and what he's done. Our praise turns to worship when we declare the greatness of our God in who he is and in what he's done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you've called us together as your people. Remind us that we are the blood-bought bride of Christ. Remind us that you have entered our world and acted on our behalf. You have spoken and revealed your character. And in doing so, we can then respond in worship to you. Teach us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.